0: We're looking at Philippians 2, as, as Sarah read, and we're going to be talking about humility this morning. Uh, humility is, is an elusive thing for many of us. Uh, it is something that we despise when it is absent, and yet it is often absent in ourselves. And I was thinking about you know some of the many stories that I could pick to illustrate humility or the lack of it. And uh, I happened upon a story this week about John Edwards, the former presidential candidate, not Jonathan Edwards, the theologian. Uh, You remember John Edwards. And as he's running for president, you've probably heard some of this story, uh, December 2007 realizes um, he not only has a mistress but has got her pregnant. And so he needs to figure out a way to get out of this predicament because it will probably kill his presidential aspirations and his marriage. Uh, that 's probably the order he was concerned about it, and so he comes up with this brilliant plan, this trial lawyer, this brilliant tactician, comes up with this plan, and he calls up his like right hand aide his uh, his right hand man he says and heres here 's his argument, this brilliant courtroom lawyer um, I think the guy 's name was Young, the last guy the, the last name of the the aide and he says young i want here 's what I want you to do. I want you to pretend that you had the affair." and that this child is your child. And, uh, and he says, how can I go to my wife, the aide at writing about this, how can I go to my wife, tell her I had an affair that I didn't have, and then spend the rest of my life caring for this child that is not mine? And John, the brilliant courtroom lawyer, says, well, it's, you know, it'll be a one-day story in the news, and it's all for a cause that's bigger than any one of us. And the aide says, you know, that cause was John Edwards' ego, right? I mean, the, 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 the gall of it, the, the, the pride, the arrogance of it, to basically want to ruin all these other people's lives to preserve his own little plan, his own ego, right? Pride is an ugly thing. Pride is a destructive thing. Now compare that to the humility of, of a very different kind of leader, Abraham Lincoln, maybe some of you have heard this story, you know he was uh, a leader during wartime. He had this General George McClellan, who was uh, incredibly insubordinate to him, you know, openly mocked him, called him a gorilla and an ape, you know, regularly disregarded his messages. And there's a story of how Lincoln had been dis- uh, blown off, disregarded so many times by his general, that Lincoln I mean, think about this, the sitting president has to go to his general's house just to meet him. And, and uh, he finds out McClellan is out, you know, at the theater or something. And he's, so he just, well, I'll wait. I'll wait till he gets home. Sits in his living room, waits and waits and waits. Well, somehow McClellan finds out the president and his team are waiting for you in your living room. And so he goes up the back entrance to his bedroom, doesn't go through the house, goes up the back entrance and just then retires for the night. Half hour later, you know, a servant comes down and says, General McClellan has returned and he retired for the night. Of course, Lincoln's aides are furious. They want him to fire him right then and there. And Lincoln, ever patient, forbearing, he says, he says, I would gladly hold General McClellan's horse if he would just win us some battles. Now, I th- I, you know, think about that. Here's, here's a guy who's completely willing to have his reputation, you know, to be dissed, to be looked over, to be blown off uh, for a higher purpose, for a greater goal. Right Now, that incredible display of humility. Arrogance does some incredibly destructive and ugly things. Humility is a beautiful thing. You know, A lot of people say humility is the virtue that makes all the other virtues palatable. Because if you're really smart, really clever, really talented, a really good basketball player, but if you don't have humility... It can rub some people the wrong way. It can be pretty nauseating, right? As we saw this week with the the La Bratchelor finale. Um, Humility, and yet humility is so elusive, right? Think about prideful, arrogant, hurtful people. Things they've said to you. Ways they have dissed you. Ways they have run over you. And think about times when you've done that to other people. Think about how you've hurt other people, looked down on them, condescended, been arrogant towards them. It's an ugly thing. But humility, uh, humility is a beautiful thing. Humility allows, as I said, all, all the other virtues to become palatable. The founder of this city, William Penn, said, sense shines with a double luster when it is set in Humility. An able and yet humble man is a jewel worth a kingdom. I like that. Uh, In this passage, Paul is calling us to imitate Jesus. But he specifically highlights Jesus the God-man, Jesus the humble king, and how Jesus humbled himself. And so we're going to focus on that today. uh, Why we must imitate Christ, what we imitate, and then how we can imitate him. Why, what, and how. Why we must imitate Christ, uh, Paul makes clear, we lose joy. There is a tremendous loss of joy in ourselves and in our community when we fail to imitate Christ in our relationships. Look at what Paul's saying here. He says, um, if you have any encouragement, any comfort, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he's writing to the Philippians who have this great experience of God. They've been, they're part of the body of Christ, they're, they're encouraged, they, they feel the warmth of this, they, they experience all the good stuff, all the comforts of Christianity. And yet, you know, there's a lot to celebrate there. He's saying, and he says, make my joy complete. As in, this brings me joy that you're experiencing these things, but my joy is not complete. Why? Well, he goes on, he says, he says look, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, he doesn't say that unless he needs to say that. In other words, they're doing a lot of things from rivalry. They're doing a lot of things from conceit. They are counting themselves more significant than everybody else. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. They're spending a lot of time focusing on their own interests. Paul's saying, look, it's great that you have all this comfort uh, warmth, you know, participation, in the spirit, love, affection—you have a great personal experience of what it means to be in Christ. And yet, I look at your relationships, and it's tainted by all this ambition, this rivalry, this selfishness, this looking to yourselves. It's—it's it's possible, friends, to have a great personal experience, you know, this ethos of Jesus and me, and yet treat each other like jerks. It's possible to know all these good things about what it means to be a Christian, and yet in our relationships, all that good stuff is not being worked out. And we go back to this default mode of looking down on each other, of being selfish, of thinking, what, you know, what can I take from this instead of what can I give? Uh, I don't know about you, but it's easy to come into, you know, a gathering like this or a home meeting and, and only be thinking about myself. Right, I come in, I'm thinking about, boy, I'm, I'm tired from this, I'm discouraged from this, I'm feeling lonely from this, I'm feeling abandoned about this, I'm feeling stressed about this, and I can be so focused on self that I miss the dozens of people around me who are more tired, more discouraged, more lonely, more abandoned, more stressed, and miss part of what God has intended when he brings a bunch of people together, which is that we would extend the love and the compassion, the tenderness that we've experienced to other people. You know, maybe you can relate to this. We have a, a home meeting. We have a small group that meets in our home every Wednesday night, and we usually host the group. And so people start showing up around 6 o'clock as we do dinner, and every week, almost every week, I should say, around 5, 5.30, maybe you can relate to this, I have that fleeting thought, like, I really don't feel like doing this tonight. <laughs> I would rather uh, maybe, you know, maybe, what if like, by some miracle nobody showed up? That would kind of be, I would be okay with that, right? That would, that would be nice. I would kind of like a night off and just veg and watch some TV. And I have that fleeting thought, like, maybe we could just call it off. And then people start, inevitably, they start showing up. And I soon realize this happens most every week. I realize that whatever I'm stressed about, whatever I'm dealing with, no matter how uh, discouraged, tired I feel, there is usually at least one, usually many more people, who are struggling, who are wrestling, who are tired, even more than I am. And here's the other thing. And, and, and so one of the things that God does, the wonderful thing about community, is he brings some perspective, right? He shows me, like, Steve, it's not, it really isn't all about you and how you're feeling. There's other people here, and there are other people hurting. The other thing that happens, which is an amazing thing, is even, or especially, when we don't spend much time talking about what I'm dealing with you know maybe i don't even pray with other people about what i'm dealing with and yet i'll come out the other end of that that meeting and i'll be encouraged i'll be strengthened can you can you relate to this you know i'll be strengthened i'll be i'll god will have met me often in the context of meeting other people where they're at there's something powerful about serving and coming alongside others that god uses to minister to us Right this is what this is exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 4 he says let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others he says i want you to get that focus off of yourself in humility consider others to be more important than you right like change your perspective you think you're, you you have so much focus on you get your focus out on other people right In humility, uh, look at other people as more important than you, right? Uh, Prideful people can be incredibly, and I include myself in this, we can be incredibly self-focused, right? Always concerned about self and ambition and success and reputation, what other people think of us, right? Narcissistic, incredibly insecure, because we're striving after something that we know we're not, you know, the, the most the most like bullheaded, prideful, arrogant people that I've ever met have also been inevitably incredibly insecure people. Why? Because they're chasing after something. And, and you know, Paul says Paul draws us to look at Christ here. He says, Have this mind among yourselves. NIV says your attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus. Right? Many people look at this passage about imitating Christ here's why we must imitate Christ. Because if you're not imitating Jesus, you're imitating something else. You're imitating some other image that you're trying to become like. Right? How many of you read uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? Great, excellent, short little, short, little book. He packs a lot in there. And it's, there's a lot we could say about it, but it, it's, it's a parable. It's an allegory. About uh, this guy who takes a bus trip to hell, and some of you say, "Well, I, I, I do, septa. I've been on that trip." Uh, <laughs> but th- this, this is literally, and it's not like the fire in brimstone hell. It's a very different kind of hell, and he's not trying to make any statements about what hell actually is. But he's he gets at some truths, and it, he taught a lot of for for Lewis in that book. Hell is very much uh, getting what you wanted, and the alienation from God and others that is the result of that. And so one of the many characters that the protagonist comes upon, uh, he realizes, is was a very famous artist on earth. And this artist, uh, they, they, he tells about the conversation with this artist, and he says um, th- these people who are kind of clinging to the ambition and the reputation that they had while on earth are... Becoming less and less of a person, kind of evaporating into into a ghost, like a vapor. They're losing their personhood. They're disappearing amidst all their uh, all the things that they coveted while on earth. And so, this famous artist is coming to grips with where he is. And he says this, these these phantoms, these specters, uh, had had just would fly into these ecstasies of hatred. He says, ecstasies of hatred and envy. And he says uh, they would spit out contempt of joy. right? They, their contempt towards joy. And so he talks about this artist uh, who... And the artist goes through this cycle. Like, how do I continue to claim this identity that I have as this artist? And he says, well, can I paint here? And the character says, well, you know, that's not really what, what we do here. We, we don't really paint. Now, there is a place... You could paint, but right now you want to paint. And what you really need to do is to see. You need to take in. You need to see. There is a place you could go, which is extremely beautiful, but you have to want to just see it and not paint it. You know, because it's still all about you. If you want to paint it, it's all about his reputation wrapped up in that. And he says, "Well, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not fine. Fine." Uh, he says, "Well, where we're going, will there at least be interesting people there?" And he says, Well like will I get to meet uh, Cezanne and Monet, like can I meet some of these really interesting, great artists? He says, Well, I guess like if, if they're there, you know, you know there there are there are millions of interesting people. He says, No, no, I want to meet I want to meet those I want to meet those interesting people. Uh, he's he's not moved by that and he says, Well, if I can't do that, at least I will have the posterity of my reputation. And so the the one character, who is uh, you know a fully or person, is just erupts in laughter, and he says, "Don't you know? Don't you know that you know on Earth that your reputation is long gone. You've, your work has been repudiated. The whole world is the art culture has moved on. Your art is uh, you know you can you can get you can spend five dollars for your painting. Nobody cares." And he says, "What? What? Yeah, well." I got. I got to find my friends. We have to. We have to write some articles. We have to mount a campaign. We have to start a journal. We have to do this and that. I got to reclaim my reputation. And then it says, like that, the ghost disappeared. It's like he fully lost his personhood. He was uh, instead of being conformed, imitating the image of Christ, letting go of his ambition to become something greater. In chasing his own ambition, chasing self, he was ultimately conformed to that and it destroyed him. And he evaporated and he was gone. See, if we are not imitating Christ, we will imitate something else and it will destroy us. It will ultimately destroy us. Now, here's the thing about humility. I think we often can uh, misunderstand it. Uh, I'll tell you two ways that I've often... Misunderstand it. One of the things is that I think it's really just kind of like this Christian trick, like this mind game, like cognitive gymnastics. I'm just going to think a lot worse of myself. Um, You know, just just think. uh, You know, Steve, just keep telling yourself like you're not that great. You're kind of you're 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 really kind of a bad person. You just don't realize it, and project that to other people. And it's as if you're having a conversation and somebody says, I'm working on developing higher self-esteem. You say, that's funny, I'm a Christian, I'm working on developing lower self-esteem. That's kind of what we do. Uh, like we're Christian shoegazers, uh, morbid introspection. I don't think that's really the kind of humility Paul is calling us to. The other is to just fake it, right? Just put on this fake, pious mask, uh, say the right stuff, self-deprecating, pseudo-humility. The problem is uh, we don't believe it. Other people don't believe it either. The the problem with these counterfeit attempts at humility is that we end up, we're still thinking about ourselves a ton. And as many people have said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. It's like get the focus off of yourself. That's why Paul is saying, think of other people put them before you. And then here in verse 5, he draws our attention to Christ. And he says, here is where your attention should be. Here is where you set your focus. If you want to be humble, if you want to see the truths of the gospel, the experience of the gospel worked out in your relationships, you must set your focus on Jesus Christ. Right? True humility, says one theologian, is not an abject, groveling, self-despising spirit. It is but a right estimate of ourselves as God sees us. It's the, it's, a, it's the perspective as God sees us, and for that we need to see that through Jesus Christ. Right, Romans 12.3, Paul says, For by the grace given me I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. So Paul is calling us to this radical change in perspective. Stop looking out for your own interests. Stop being so obsessed with what you think about yourself, what other people think about you. Get your focus on others and get your focus on Christ. David Powelson says that Christianity is radically extra-spective. Not introspective, radically extrospective, outward-focused, others-focused, Christ-focused. And in that, we are humbled. And so Paul shows us what we should imitate. Christ, the humble king. Now, verses uh, 5 through 11, guys, uh, is this amazing hymn. Many, Many commentators think that this was... You know, an early hymn, an early doxology, a confession of faith that Paul is drawing on an early tradition uh, of confessing a profound understanding of Jesus Christ as the God-Man, that both fully God and fully man. That's Orthodox Christian teaching about the identity of Christ, fully God and fully man. You know, and he's not Paul's not inventing this on the fly. He's drawing on something that they confessed, that they knew, that Christians from the earliest times confessed. Um, and this is, this is incredibly deep theology. We could spend weeks and weeks talking about each verse here. Uh, but let's look, at, let's look at this through the lens of humility. What does it say first about Jesus? That he was, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though Jesus was himself God, the second person, eternally existent member of the Trinity... For the sake of his redemptive mission, did not count this equality with God, which is rightly his, a thing to be grasped or clung to. He willingly let go of it. Jesus is fully God, but willingly let go of all the rights, privileges, and prerogatives of being the second person of the Trinity in order to accomplish his redemptive mission. He made himself nothing. He literally emptied himself. right? Like the hymn says, he emptied himself of all but love for the sake of the mission. Right? He, um, he takes on the very form of a servant. And what's the form of a servant? Being born in the likeness of men. To be a human is to be a servant. That's what human beings are created to do, to be, is to be servants of God. Jesus takes on that form in order to be the servant. Jesus is the ultimate servant. What does he say to the disciples? He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but that was his very right and privilege, to be served by all of creation. But to serve. Jesus Christ came to serve. He is the ultimate servant. He shows us what it is to be a servant. And then he takes that humbling even further, all the way into humiliation. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating way for anyone to die as a criminal, victim of a sham trial, mocked, spit on, persecuted. And he did this all for the sake of redemption. It's in humility that God chose to defeat the greatest enemy that the world has ever seen. It's in humility that God chose to defeat sin and death. It's like Tolkien says in The Lord of the Rings, he says, Such is oft the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. I love thinking about that in connection to Christ. I mean, here's... Here's Jesus Christ intimately involved in the creation of the world. Right? Isaiah 40 gives us these great pictures of the vastness of God compared to his creation and says you know, he could hold all the oceans of the world in, in the cup of his hand. It says he measures out the universe with the breadth of his hand. You know, this, for us, this is a few inches. We don't even know how big the universe is. Right? It may even still be expanding. We don't know. God just stretches it out. I think it will be that big. That's good for the universe. Right? That's Jesus. Creating the universe, creating the world. And then Jesus takes on a body and hands like you and me. And he allows those hands to suffer pain. He allows his hands to be stretched out and pierced by nails for you and me. Do we begin to grasp? The extent of Jesus' humbling and his humiliation for us, I mean, we have to wonder, God, why? Why do you choose to defeat the greatest enemies the world has ever known through the humble, through the weak? It's because God that's always been God's plan. God has always loved the humble. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble what it means to be human is to stand before God to have a sober account of ourselves and to know who we are in light of God. And Jesus shows, shows us what that looks like. Jesus shows us what it means to be fully human, to be humbled and to join him in that redemptive mission. Now look, it goes on, verses 9 through 11, to talk about the exaltation of Jesus and here's, here's the application for us, friends. This is where all of history is headed. This is where everything is going. One day, every knee will bow down. One day, every tongue will confess. One day, there will be no more controversies. There will be no more debates. There will be no more question as to who is the creator of the world, who is the redeemer of the world, and who everyone should give all their praise and glory to. For the Christian, we start living as if that's true now. For the Christian, we bow the knee now. Our tongue confesses that Jesus is our Lord now. That's the posture of a humble servant, bowed down and confessing who our Lord is. This is the posture of humility, to bow down and submission. And so, if you know Jesus, you should be progressively becoming more humble and more like Jesus, because this is where everything is headed. Bowing down and confessing who Jesus is and who we are in light of that. right? If, if, if this is real, right? If, if, if all of humanity is going to bow down and confess this, uh, this is where things are headed and we should get on board now. Now, one thing I, one thing I just have to point out here. It's in this passage, this great confession of Jesus' humanity and his divinity that uh, completely blows apart with what people wanted to do with Jesus from the beginning of time. And that's to say, I, you know what, okay, you're talking about imitating Christ and being humble and like following Jesus' example. I like that. I'm not so much into the cross stuff, the sin stuff, the death stuff. You know, like, like I would rather put that aside, Jesus thinking that he's God. That seems a little bit goofy and, and, and archaic, but I'm into Jesus, the great moral teacher. This passage, friends, doesn't let you do that. It doesn't let you do that. In fact, it says this example of Jesus' humility and his service and all that stuff, it is precisely the fact that he is God and laid all that aside in order to serve and in order to save. It is precisely that that makes it such an amazing example. it's, It's the fact that he is God and served us the way he did that makes him such a powerful Savior. And so you cannot tear apart Jesus the man, Jesus, God, Jesus, you can't, you can't drive a wedge there. People always want to drive a wedge there. I was just reading, a. there's a new book coming out by this guy, Philip Pullman. Uh, he wrote the Golden Compass series. He's, a, he's an atheist. Um, he wrote the Golden Compass because he didn't want kids reading Narnia, so he wanted to give them something else to read. And so I'm reading Christopher Hitchens, who's also a very well-known atheist. He's probably my favorite atheist. Uh, he's funny, and he's honest probably because he's drunk most of the time. And he uh, Hitchens is writing a review of Philip Pullman's book, which is about basically two Jesuses. Pullman's book, new new novel coming out, is that Mary had twins. And one is Jesus, like the cool guy that you want to hang out with, and one is this shady, the other twin is this shady twin that she calls Christ. And he's the Machiavellian uh, manipulator and and the conniver, and basically, uh, he's the one who writes everything down and and distorts it for posterity. And Hitchens is reviewing this novel, and he says, he says, look, I am a strong non-admirer of C.S. Lewis. He says, let me just make that clear. He says, but, let me make this clear as well. When Lewis talks about, like, the, you know, the liar lunatic lord argument that you can't you can't just have jesus the the moral teacher with the you know without the claims to divinity he says Lewis is more honest here Lewis is more honest than Philip Pullman you can't have Jesus the nice moral teacher and ignore all his claims jesus really jesus this uh he is a horrible person if he is not who he says he is. So Christopher Hitchens saying, Christopher Hitchens agreeing, you can't have, you know, Jesus, the nice moral teacher, without Jesus, the God man, the one to whom every knee will bow someday. can't drive those apart. The Bible doesn't let us, Paul doesn't let us here. Now, finally, how do we become more like Jesus? How do we become uh, more, more like him? And I'd say, friends, I don't think I fully saw this until you know really getting into this passage. I really have thought of humility as often like this cognitive this mind game that you play with yourself. Like just keep telling yourself that you're less, you know just keep trying to say the right stuff. It it really is right here. Like verses 3 and 4, he says Cons- consider others more significant than yourselves and then look to other people's interests. As in don't just think it, but then act on it. And then he shows us what Christ did to humble himself. And he's not, this is not just simply an amazing exposition of Christ's nature. This is also a blueprint for us. If you want to know, how do I become more humble? How do I become more like Jesus? Look at what Jesus himself did. Let me just walk us through a few of these things. Uh, not clinging to or grasping our rights. You know, one of the things that makes us prideful, makes us not humble... Is the the rights or prerogatives that we continue to cling to? I mean, now, now this is Philadelphia. Like we fight for our rights here, right? I mean, the, the you know Philadelphia lawyer that used to mean something. Like if somebody gets in your way, you sue them or you fight them, right? But Jesus calls us to something different. You don't cling. You don't grasp. Yeah, I, now very few of us uh, have anything. Remotely, like what Christ did to let go of, obviously. But let me, let me think about this. Are, are you in conflict with somebody? I'm, I'm always convicted by what Paul says in First Corinthians 6 to these people who are in conflict. And he says, one brother uh, sues another. And this in front of unbelievers. He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. And this always gets me. He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? I'm a very principle-driven person, right? Like, you violate something, you do something wrong against me, I want to make sure at least that the truth is heard out. Even if it's, you know, the restitution isn't there, I want to make sure at least that people know what happened, who's right, who's wrong, let's work it out, let's talk it out. And then Paul says, no. Don't even do that. Don't even cling to your need to be right. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Some of you are in conflicts right now. Family members, roommates. Why not rather just lose the argument? Somebody somebody's like scammed you on some rent money or some money that they owe you. Why not rather be cheated, Paul says. Why not rather willingly, in humility and by grace, Allow, allow grace to win out. Allow love to win out instead of having to cling to your right to assert yourself, to have your reputation intact. I mean, that's, that's challenging, right? <laughs> that challenges me. Jesus willingly let go of every right, every privilege, every prerogative. Why? For the greater purpose of redemption. Let's move on. How about embracing... The empty. It says that Jesus made himself nothing. Of course, friends, to be a Christian is to realize, like, I don't have anything to bring to the table here. St. Augustine famously said, the sufficiency of my merit is to know that my merit is not sufficient. The sufficiency of my merit is to know that my merit is not sufficient. And friends, as we come, especially in a, in a community like this of people who are seeking to follow Jesus and seeking to love each other, We've got to first come to the table and say, you know, I don't, here's what I have to contribute. I don't have anything to contribute. It's only by grace. It's only through God himself. And I was reminded, you know, I'm in ministry. So ministry is one of those things that I can tend to find my identity and worth and sufficiency in. And I was reminded of this the other night, of my insufficiency. We, uh, we had a couple who had just been in our, our small group for just a, just a few months. And they had a sudden job change, and they're moving back out west, and it was our last time with them. And uh, the wife, Lachelle, she's only, she's only been there like four or five times. But she started sharing how this group had meant so much to her, how it had like, spoken to her, and, and she said uh, it had been like a spiritual jump start for her and changed her perspective. She's talking about like medical missions. And so well, that all sounds great, right? Here's the thing. I'm the leader of that group. I can't think of any particular conversation or meeting or anything that actually happened that brought that about. You know, there was nothing that I could look to and say, ah, yeah, you know, it was really good that I kind of structured things that way and I, like made sure that conversation happened. Like, it was pretty awesome of me. Uh, there was nothing that I could boast about. And I was forced to confront Wow, I guess I guess like the Holy Spirit shows up, I guess even if i 'm not showing up, the Holy Spirit is working isn 't that, that crazy isn 't that amazing the irony is like i wasn 't even there to hear that comment because it was my night to watch the kids, so like it really it was like, it was like thank you God for telling me it 's really not about you, Steve right my own insufficiency this is but this is good news right this is good news it really isn 't about you my only sufficiency is to know that my My merit is not sufficient. Uh, Third thing, let's just, Jesus came to serve. You want to become more humble? You serve. Now, I'll tell you, I'm I'm a parent now of of three children, and before I had kids, I was the expert on parenting. I knew all kinds of stuff about parenting. Uh, Many of you may be experts on parenting. Uh, Write a book. We'd love to read it. And, I can tell you there's been nothing like more humbling probably in, in my life than the actual act of becoming a parent now three times over. And my kids are still young, so they're not even teenagers yet. i got a lot more humbling in store for sure. But it's, it's amazing what happens as you seek to love and serve these little people, what God does in your heart, both to cause you to love them And to cause you to cry out uh, in your need for him. And to see and to be humbled at your own insufficiency. It's great with kids, but it's also great with other people. You know, you have have a roommate you're having problems with? Like, seek to serve them. You have people in your life, millions of opportunities to serve. As you serve them, God will use that to be a humbling agent in your life. Uh, And finally... Uh, dying to ourselves and our ambitions, right you, you know one one way to translate uh, rivalry and conceit in verse three is you have know, selfish ambition. Jesus wants us to die to ourselves, die to our desires for those things, and you know it, it, that it really isn 't about us and in an age of social media and personal branding and self promotion there is so much Around us, yelling in our ears every day like you got you got to make it about yourself, you've got promote yourself right uh LeBron James referred to himself in the third person like five times in that interview the other night I read uh, Steve Lutz would never do that right uh, I mean, how arrogant is that and and yet there i think I think Paul lays it out for us well. he says, look to the interests of others even at, even as you are. You know you're, you're doing your thing. You're 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 in your career, but look to the interests of others. How can you advance other people? How can you bless other people? You know, fi- uh, the book Good to Great talks about what what makes leaders really great, and it says that the the highest level of leaders uh, they used words to describe them like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild mannered, self-effacing, understated did not believe their own clippings, and so forth. They were people who put others and the organization ahead of themselves and their ambitions. Look, even, even like the business world, even the secular world, realizes the power of humility. How much more should people who know Christ, the God who became man, took on the nature of a servant, how much more should we you know, be humble, modest, a gracious, self-effacing, putting others' interests before ourselves. Friends, I would call you, embrace this dying to self, this humbling as Jesus has shown us and taught us, uh, so that you would experience the joy of becoming like Christ. what What does it say in Hebrews about Jesus? He says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame." Right, Jesus, who in being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or clung to. He endured the cross for you and for me, scorning its shame. Why? For the future joy that would result from that. That's the same pattern, it's the same rhythm that God wants to work into us. To die to self, to die to all our self-interest and ambition and whatever it is, reputation, so that you would know the greater joy of becoming like Christ. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, this is, uh, this is one of these hard but true. Everything in us cries out to be about self, to take interest in self, to advance self. And yet, you, uh, through the Gospel, call us to something totally different. Uh, Lord, being like Christ is so much harder than we ever realize. And Lord, uh, even now as we feast on your body and your blood, would you be teaching us and showing us what it means to be humbled so that we would know the joy that you call us to in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.